So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. And he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by the Almighty and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away or astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him, and he made him sick. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will succeed by his hand. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest full, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels. In the last several months, we've heard the gospel preached from Isaiah. That was my intention when I started teaching Isaiah 53. Everybody uses the New Testament to preach the gospel. But I thought, how can I preach the gospel without using the New Testament? And this is how we ended up here. But in the last several months, you've heard the gospel preached from Isaiah. Each new moon... We have heard about Yahweh's plan for his kingdom and the redemption of his people through his only begotten son. And so often I hear people talk about the gospel message and it's always inclusive of the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the gospel for sure. Amen. However, that's not all the gospel. As a matter of fact, it may not even be the gospel mm -hmm. at all. Because while his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection are incredibly important and they are some of the most miraculous events in history they are not necessarily the gospel the gospel message my friends all throughout the bible is the kingdom that is coming Amen. that's the gospel message Amen. we see this over and over again throughout the old and new testaments the model prayer that we pray in here every sabbath has it embedded in the front of it your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven yes. that's the gospel message it seems as if all the parables that are given in the Gospels have to do with the kingdom to come. All of them. Right. 
In Luke 8, the parable of the sower is explained. And after three different seeds are mentioned, only one will bear fruit and be a kingdom tree, a tree that's found in the kingdom. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the net, where the kingdom of heaven is like a large net that is thrown into the sea, and it collects every kind of fish. And then the angels, it's dragged upon the seashore, and then the angels come, by and come down and they separate the good fish from the bad fish. The bad fish are removed and they're thrown into the fire. That's kingdom language. In Mark chapter 12, we have the parable of the vineyard owner. We see how he wanted so bad to go gather his fruit. So he sent slaves to gather his fruit. But the slaves were beaten. Some were put to death. And so the vineyard owner sends his only begotten son. But his son was killed. His son was killed. And what did the vineyard owner do? He destroyed the tenants. And he gave the vineyard to someone else. This is another kingdom message. We see that in, embedded in the, in the parables. There's so much tied up in these parables that we, should, we could spend weeks going through them. And we have in the past. But my point is that the gospel message is simply that Yahweh's kingdom is at hand. Yes. He's getting ready to deliver the kingdom to earth. And he has sent servants ahead of time to prepare all the inhabitants of earth for his kingdom. The prophets had a job to do. And that was to prepare the people for the kingdom that's coming. The Messiah had a job to do. John the Baptist had a job to do. The apostles had jobs to do. And all of their jobs worked hand in hand with Yahweh's preparation for his kingdom. And so that's the gospel. However, entangled and intertwined in the kingdom message, we certainly do find the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the restitution made by our Lord bound up right at the heart of the kingdom message. It's beautiful how Yahweh has predetermined, has a predetermined plan, and in his timing, he unravels it one layer at a time, and all of it dovetails together to create the precious plan that you and I are included in. And he's foretold the whole plan through his word, because all throughout the first gospel that we have here in Isaiah 53, we have seen the kingdom plan drawn out in detail. In chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, we see a preview of the Messiah's exaltation in verse 13. In verse 14, we see a picture of his disfigurement from his execution. And we also see the astonishment of the people who would not only witness this execution, but also hear about it like you and I do today. And in verse 15, Isaiah says that we all see and understand what has happened at his suffering. Folks, this is all part of the gospel. It's all part of Yahweh's kingdom to come. Moving on into chapter 53, we discovered that this chapter was not so much a telling of what would happen to Yeshua, but rather a confession that would be made by future Israel in their recognition that they had destroyed the saving life that was sent them in effort to ransom their souls. In verse 1 through 3, they start their confession with somewhat of an excuse as to why they didn't believe that Yeshua was the son of Yahweh. Mm. They talk about not recognizing the right arm or the power of Yahweh. Mm. They go on to talk about how he was insignificant. He had no royal or regal background. They say that his appearance was inferior and that he was despised and rejected by men. He was not valued at all, not by anybody. Mm. Following that in verses 4 through 6, it seems as if they get a little bit sorrowful now 
that they've seen that he was what they had or what they had done to him they can they can finally see what they have done to him and they start to confess they say oh now we see we see that he was the one and only son of the almighty he bore our sins he carried our pains but then they make another small excuse for their actions and they say we thought he was afflicted because of his own sin we thought that yahweh was punishing him because he was a blasphemer but now we see that he was just pierced because of our transgression he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for us fell on him. Verses 7 through 9 is what we covered the last time that I taught. And it was so informative that some 700 years ago, Isaiah prophesied about the crucifixion of the Messiah. And it is so incredibly accurate. His insight was amazing to me. That he can predict the persecution and the crucifixion of the Messiah all the way down to the criminals on the tree that are next to him. Mm. Not only that, but the rich man that was at his death, be it Joseph Arimathea. This prophecy is so detailed some 700 years before it ever happened, as we can see that it took place just like he says it would as we look back through histories or we read the Gospels in the New Testament. We can see the imagery there. It's incredible. And I can only imagine that the rest of the prophecy is accurate as well because remember, part of this confession it's still yet future. It's not come to pass yet. And I believe it will certainly come to pass before the dawning of Yahweh's kingdom here on the earth. Now that was just a short summary of what we have covered in the past months. And, uh, but today we're going to see the good of Yeshua's persecution and his death. Not that it was a good event in and of itself. Okay, It wasn't a good thing by itself by any means but because it's already happened there'll be something good that comes out of it yeah amen and it's all bound up in verses 10 through 12 and that's what we're going to unwrap today yeah. that's our focus so let's look into verse 10 again in chapter 53 it says yet yahweh was pleased to crush him and he made him sick when you make him a restitution offering he will see his seed he will prolong his days and the will of yahweh will succeed by his hands that's a pretty complex passage. I've thought about it for a long time, and I'm still somewhat on the fence about it. Okay, I don't have I don't have all the everything ironed out, but I, but I, I have kind of narrowed it down to two options, and I'll give you both of them to look at in your own time and your own study. So if you're going back and reading behind me and studying behind me, you can take what I say and kind of sift through the ashes, so to speak. In verse 10, the HCSB, that's what I'm reading out of up here, says that Yahweh was pleased to crush him and make him sick. So we'll start with the first line. The NASB says, same verse, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And the Net Bible, or the New English Translation, says, though Yahweh desired to crush him and make him ill. Okay? This wording kind of throws up some red flags. One might ask, why was Yahweh pleased to make his perfect one and only son suffer why would he have to suffer unjustly and that's a great question it's a question that i would have <clears throat> why would he desire that he's unblemished he knows no sin we've seen that through the whole chapter why would yahweh choose to crush him or make him suffer unjustly well here is an, an answer to that question okay and this is how that i have understood this verse for years in the past 
Yahweh doesn't necessarily desire to see his son suffer, nor does he enjoy watching him go through pain and agony and humiliation. I don't think that that's what Yahweh desires. But he was pleased in the effects of what his suffering accomplished. In other words, because Yeshua was willing to die on the stake for our transgressions, that's you and me, and the rest of all the sinners in the world, because he was willing to die for us, we can have eternal life. And that very act itself is what pleases Yahweh. Because of, because of his humility in dying, it pleased Yahweh to crush him. Everybody understand that? I think that's pretty simple. Pretty simple understanding. That's the way I've always understood it. That's the best heads and tails I can make of the passage. And I think that makes sense. And I think it's a good understanding. I think that's okay. However, let me give you another understanding. <clears throat> the Greek Septuagint reads this way in verse 10. It says, the Lord also is pleased, pleased to purge him from his stroke. That doesn't sound anything like we just read. Okay? But it says, the Lord also is pleased to purge him from his stroke. That's the Brenton translation of the Greek Septuagint. And another translation for the Greek Septuagint reads like this. It says, and the Lord will and the Lord willed to cleanse him of the beating. Now that throws a whole new light on the subject. What if Yahweh is not pleased to crush him? but rather purged him from his beating or cleansed him from his beating. I could obviously teach on this text for probably two or three sermons, but it's incredibly technical, and uh, we don't have the time today to go into to all, all of that. So what I want you to do is to listen to the latter part of verse 10. That was the first part of verse 10. I want you to listen to the latter part of verse 10, and I want you to see what fits the context in effort to understand the first part of verse 10. And then you can make your own decision as to what Isaiah 53 verse 10 means. So we have in the first part, it pleased Yahweh to crush him or it pleased Yahweh to cleanse him from his beating. Now the rest of verse 10, it says, when you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days and the will of Yahweh will succeed by his hand. Now, the rest of verse 10 is still Isaiah speaking. We have moved away from the confession of national Israel, and Isaiah is speaking in, in, in verse 10, okay? And right here in the second part of verse 10, he is speaking as if he's speaking to Yahweh. And he says, when you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, and so on. Now, making a restitution offering is a purging of sins, right? We can read about that in the latter part of Leviticus chapter 5 and the first part of Leviticus chapter 7. And Isaiah says when he becomes that, the restitution offering, he will see his seed and the will of Yahweh will succeed. Now if Yeshua dies and becomes a restitution offering, then how in the world will he see his seed? And what really is his seed? Well, this is a Hebrew idiom that simply means that he will live forever. He will see his seed. He will live forever. The same way that David lives by his seed sitting on the throne. Okay? The latter part of verse 10 simply means that Yahweh will prolong Yeshua's life. And he will see the fruits of his labor. So if Yahweh is pleased to crush him and make him a restitution... It's almost, it almost sounds like he will reward him with a long life after his crucifixion, right? And that's exactly what he does. He resurrects him to eternal life, and Yeshua lives forever. But why the unnecessary crushing? Why? Well, here's another thought. The Greek reads like this in the second part. 
The second part of verse 10, it says, The Lord also is pleased to purge him from his stroke. If you can get, that's the first part. The second part says, If you can give an offering for sin, your soul shall see a long-lived seed. Mm. Now that's not a ton of difference, but it is difference. In one sense, it seems as if somebody destroyed Yeshua, being the Jewish leaders of his time. And on the other hand, it sounds like Yahweh destroyed Yeshua, where it says Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Okay? In either event, Yahweh resurrects Yeshua and gives him a long life to enjoy the fruits of his service. Let me ask you this. This is, this is going to give us the answer to the question. Who killed Yeshua? Who had him killed? And who is making confession in the first nine verses? It's the Jewish leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Jewish leaders, okay? I would say based on the whole context of Isaiah 53 that the crime is on the Jewish leaders, not Yahweh. Not Yahweh. I think we lose something in our English translation and what is happening is the Jews are making a confession from Isaiah 53 verse 1 all the way up to Isaiah 53 verse 9 in this chapter. And then in verse 10, Isaiah starts to speak. The confession stops. Isaiah starts to speak. And he says this, if we take the Greek Septuagint. Even though you did all this, it pleased Yahweh to deliver or cleanse him from his beating. Mm -hmm. wow. And after a restitution or offering for sin has been made, at that point, Yeshua will see the fruit of his labor. Wow. He will see the seed. He will live forever. And so will his seed. And then for the finale of the verse, the will of Yahweh will succeed by, the, by his hand. In essence, the kingdom of Yahweh is one step closer. That's one more part of it. Okay, it's one step closer. But moving on, let's look at verse 11. It says, he will see it out of anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Now, there are a couple of things to this verse I want to point out. And this, this should be something for all of us to pay attention to. Number one, I want you to notice the verbs have switched from past tense to future tense and what we're reading. They started halfway through verse 10 and they'll continue until the second part of verse 12. These tenses give us time frames as to tell us whether or not something has already happened or yet it's still futuristic. And um, they're very important. The other thing that I want you to notice is who is speaking here. The first part of verse 11 is still Isaiah speaking. Okay? But the second part of verse 11 and all the way through the end of verse 12 is Yahweh speaking. Just things to pick up on when you're studying. You can't just read and not take notice of these things or you'll never pull the full intention of the text out of it. Okay, so the first part of verse 11 says, He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. What does it mean that he will see it out of his anguish? The NET Bible says this. I love the way that it, that it puts this. It says, Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. Mm. And that's a good explanation. I think that's a good translation. After the Messiah suffered, he looks back on what he went through. He'll reflect on his work. That's his knowledge. Okay? Mm. Remember, this is still Isaiah speaking right here. I believe it's a recognition of the accomplishment by Yeshua. I think after going through all the trials and hardship, he'll look back at what he accomplishes and he'll say, it was worth it. Mm -hmm. It was worth it. My service to Yahweh was worth it all. Wow. 
The crime committed against me, the torture, the torment, the crying tears of blood, the humiliation, the pain, the suffering, the beatings, all that come with it, all that was not in vain. Wow. Not in vain, but was a wonderful achievement Amen. for the kingdom of Yahweh. Amen. It was a wonderful achievement. He'll be satisfied with what he sees, his knowledge of what his servant, his suffering has accomplished. That, that's, what it, that's what it means when it says that he will be satisfied. Mm. Again, he'll be satisfied knowing that he has completed something, that he has accomplished something that's great. The rest of verse 11 says, My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Okay, right here, this is where Isaiah has stopped speaking, and Yahweh jumps in. This is where Yahweh starts, starts to talk. It seems that what Yahweh is doing is affirming the confirmation that Israel has made and saying he was my servant. That's right. You got it right. He was my servant. Y'all recognize that you crucified my slave. That was my servant. My slave and he has justified many people. He has carried on his back the iniquities of all people. He has suffered unjustly and because of that he is my righteous servant. Some translations say righteous one. I think the NASB translates it that way, the righteous one. And that's a good title for him. He was the righteous one. Peter calls him the righteous one in Acts chapter 3 when he's preaching. Mm -hmm. Stephen preached the great sermon before he was stoned and he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not crucify or not persecute? They killed those prophets who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. One. Stephen refers to him as the righteous one. This had become a messianic title for Yeshua. Paul also mentions the righteous one in Acts chapter 22 after he meets with Ananias. He says, Ananias spoke to me about the righteous one. So Yeshua is the righteous one of Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking of his slave, his Ebed servant, his one and only. And he says, my servant will justify the many. By many he means you and me. And all the saints that have ever been and are to come. He will justify. He will justify means that he will provide the righteousness for them. That's our, that's our justification. We find our justification in his righteousness. Imputed righteousness is what we call that. By his work, they will be, they will be ransomed or we will be ransomed. So he will justify or ransom, or ransom the many and he will carry their sins or their iniquities. Brothers and sisters, he did that for you and me. He did it for you and me. He was obedient unto death. And because of that, you and I have a spot in the kingdom that's to come. Even though he suffered greatly, because he died, his father is pleased and Yahweh's will can succeed. And Yeshua is satisfied in all that. Knowing what he died for, because his love for sinners was greater than his love for his, his own self. Mm-hmm. Amen. What a big brother. That's an amazing sacrifice. Amen. That's an amazing sacrifice. A man that loves that that loves you more than he loves himself. Amen. We all we all say that we love somebody more than we love ourselves. But take everything away from you where you don't have anything left and then give somebody something. Yeah. Then you're not quite as loving. When you got plenty, it's easy to love on people. It's easy to shower them with gifts, but when you don't have anything, it's hard to love somebody more than you love yourself. That's why the widow's mite was so precious. Wow. She didn't have anything. This is his life. Yeshua didn't have anything. He had a heart filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. But he didn't have anything in the sense of material gain. That's right. He didn't have just what he needed to live. Yeah. Verse 12. 
It says, therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as full, because he submitted himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. This has to be one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible to me. The more I read it, the more I like it. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as foes. Who are the many and the mighty? That's you and me. You and me. It's all the ones that he died for. The many are the ones who make this confession that Yeshua is Lord. That's the many. Who have faith in Yeshua and in his work on the tree? What does, why does he get us as rewards? Because he willingly submitted himself unto death. That's why. That's the reason that he gets us as rewards. He didn't say, well, I might do it, but I'm not sure that everybody's worth it. He didn't count the cost. Mm-hmm. He, went, he went to his death humbly. He didn't say, these guys have been talking bad about me, and man, I've been accused of being a blasphemer. I've been accused of all kinds of things. I'm going to get mad about it. He didn't get, it. He didn't get mad. Mm-hmm. He died. He died. He went to a torture state because of all that. So the many are the ones who make this confession because he's willing to submit himself to death and he didn't cost, count the cost. He didn't consider his faith. Okay? He silently, humbly submitted himself to the tree for our sake. We are the seed, ladies and gentlemen, that he will get when Yahweh prolongs his day. We are the seed that he will see. Yahweh gave him a seed at his right hand and one day when we're, when we're resurrected to eternal life, we will be the prize that he died for. That's what he's going to get. Amen. We will be the spoil that he gave his life as a ransom for. And given up his life as a ransom, he bought stock in the ultimate plan of Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh's plan will succeed because of righteous, a righteousness of a slave that gave it all. <laughs> it's going to go on. It's going to work. His plan is going to come to fruition because Yeshua did his part. Yes. We did our part too. We were the sinners. Yeah. that he had to die for. We managed our part. We did it just right. He had us all predicted before the before the world ever began. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. We sinned. But his one and only son that he had faith in that wouldn't wouldn't break the commandments. Mm. He didn't. Wow. And not only that, not only did he not break the commandments, he was willing enough to die for those who did. Amen. Amen. Though he was numbered with the criminals and hung on a tree like the worst of them, he still bore our sins. And he interceded for the nastiest sinners of all mankind. Isn't it wonderful to know that somebody thought about you before you ever even existed? Mm-hmm. Isn't it incredible that from the beginning of time, Yahweh has already made a, made a way for a wretched sinner like us in the person of his son. He's already, he's already worked all that out. Brothers and sisters, he is, he is part of the means of the kingdom to come. And for that reason, I think this chapter in Isaiah should have been the first gospel, or is the first gospel. It's the precious gospel. Mm. One more thing before I start to wrap this up. I want you to look at the last part of verse 12. It says, Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Okay, number one, we know that he bore our sins, but not only our sins, also the criminals that he was hung with. Okay. Mm-hmm. He bore everybody's sins that put faith in him. That's right. All right. But look at the phrase, and intercedes for the rebels. The word used here for intercede is often translated mediated or mediate. 
If I ask you what a mediator is, what would you say? Somebody who goes between, right? When we talk about a median on the highway, you got two lanes going opposite ways of tra traffic. You got a median in the middle that separates two things, right? It go, it's a go-between. All right. Someone who goes between and reconciles things. Well, who is the mediator going between? So if Yeshua is the mediator, who is he mediating between? You got Yahweh. You got sinful humanity. Okay? And then somebody's a mediator. It's not Yahweh, and it's not sinful humanity who's a mediator. It's Yeshua. He's the, he's the mediator. He's the go-between. Right? He's reconciling the difference between sinful humanity and Yahweh himself. If Deborah and Jeff are having a disagreement, or maybe just having trouble getting through to one another, Jeff's got a pretty thick head, and so they may need a mediator to help balance things from time to time. They need somebody to reconcile their differences. If I was the mediator, how would I help them? How would I help two people that are struggling with one another? I'd smooth up the transition, right? I would smooth up the transition. I would clarify maybe what Deborah meant to Jeff without Deborah speaking to Jeff. I would I would mediate between the two, and I would I would clear things up, and I would make it make it a little easier, a little, the transition a little easier. Well, look, folks, this is Yahweh speaking here, and He calls His servant the righteous one, the mediator, or the intercessor. He's talking about his son. He says he's the mediator between sinful man and Yahweh. Paul calls this man the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And he says this. And he says, for there is one almighty and one mediator between the almighty and man. A man, Christ Yeshua, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. We've got three categories of people. We've got Yahweh. We've got sinful humanity, and we've got our Savior, and He's in the middle. He's not Yahweh, mm. and He is not sinful humanity. Mm. He's the mediator between the two. Mm. Aren't you glad that we have someone who stands in the enormous gap between us and a holy, mighty? Amen. Amen. I know I am. I can't imagine.